This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. If you're joining us over from the For the Love feed, welcome. This is a little bit about what we do in book club. Every month, we get a dedicated interview with our author of the book that we are reading. And it's just fascinating. We get to ask all the questions that we've had all month. We get to give them our really specific and pointed like, feedback and responses to their characters or their style or whatever it is. And it just feels really special to get access to our authors in this way. And, oh, today's interview is, it's so delightful. I'm not sure what I expected, but I just absolutely loved this conversation. Okay. First of all, it's 2023. Hi, can you believe this? Let's get into the good stuff right off the bat with inspiration from the one and only Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) It isn't her herself, as we no longer have her with us. It's not been that long, actually, that we said goodbye to Justice Ginsburg. But before her passing, we got the honor to read a lot of her own words in aptly titled My Own Words. So. While we can't speak to her today personally, we do have the honor of speaking with Professor Mary Hartnett, who played a huge role in the co-creation of this incredible book. Really, um, this has just been so fascinating. Mary is an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law. She focuses on international women's human rights. Professor Hartnett's been actively involved in women's rights issues throughout her whole career, as an international attorney, including representing low-income clients in federal court through her service on the civil pro bono panel for the U.S. District Court in D.C. 
Mary has a special interest in international women's rights issues. She's lived in Bahrain, Norway, Russia, Ireland, Latvia, Uzbekistan, and Georgia, and has been obviously highly esteemed with tons of very official awards for her work with and for women across the globe. Mary and her colleague, Wendy Williams, co-compiled my own words in that the book itself is a collection of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work, her writing. Some of them are speeches. Some of them are tributes. Some of them are opinions she wrote on the court. Some of them are articles, starting with her first op-ed as an eighth grader and the president of the newspaper. It's the very first entry. And so it's this arc of her work, literally in her own words, her own writing. But Mary and Wendy have compiled it and provided tons of context for it and intros and segues and really taking us through the story and the journey of RBG. It is fascinating. It's interesting. It's so smart. It's inspiring. Like we've never read a book like this in book club before. It's our first semi-autobiographical book, if you will. But what an icon. I mean, it doesn't really matter where you fall on the political spectrum. I mean, she was just just a giant for women, for equal rights. She was iconic in so many ways. And my own words is just like kind of a revelation to read this like canon of her work in this very specific order where you just see her life emerge in front of your eyes. It's fascinating. I love, loved my conversation today with Mary Hartnett. She is delightful and smart. And she told us all these interesting, like behind the scenes and insider stories about working with RBG for 20 years on both my own words And then the official biography that she and Wendy are writing that are, they're almost finished with. So anyway, the whole conversation is delightful and you're going to love it. And so I'm pleased to share this such interesting like book chat with author extraordinaire and just human being extraordinaire, Mary Hartnett. It's my delight, everybody, to welcome the absolutely wonderful, incredible, credentialed, impressive Mary Hartnett to the show. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Jen, so much for inviting me. I've kind of rolled out your resume to my listeners already, but if you just don't mind, Professor, would you just talk for a minute about you and where you are, what your work primarily is in the world. You've got a lot of slivers of the pie chart, frankly, but what you do, what motivates you to continue doing what you do, just all of it. I'd like everybody to kind of hear from you first before we jump into your incredible book. Sure. Well, I'd, I'd be delighted to talk a little bit about myself, but first, please call me Mary, not Professor. Okay. If it's okay with you, I will call you Jen. It is okay, but let the record show that I gave you your much-deserved moniker, which you have earned, that Mary it is. But so my work right now, really, I, I think we're going to segue quite easily into the main topic today because my work right now is all Ruth Bader Ginsburg all the time. Because we're focusing right now on finishing the authorized biography, I have not been doing any other Ruth Bader Ginsburg or book events But this one just sounded so interesting to me. And you are such a bridge builder in our complicated world right now. So doing an event with you, I think, is extra special. So I'm very excited about that. Thank you. What a lovely thing to say and to hear. I am honored that you've given us your time, truly. And I've got a million things to say about the book, but our reader community is, we're just over the moon. I mean... It is incredible. So before we get into it, maybe you could talk a little bit about what led you to this place. I mean, first you pitched your own idea, of course, but you've been selected with your partner to do this biography. It's pretty, it's an honor, I'm sure. Can you talk about how you got there? 
it is a huge honor and and it's also a tremendous responsibility that we really hope we can live up to. But the way the book started, so both books really started in the same place. And that is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as you know, before she became a judge or a justice, she worked on women's rights cases. And so, but most people, this will be surprising to hear now that she's this icon, but back 20 years ago when this all started, people didn't really know much about her. She was already on the Supreme Court, but I ran a program for women's rights lawyers at Georgetown that I'm still involved with. 12 women would come to Washington each year for a year and still do. Six from the United States and six from different countries in Africa. And they would meet. We have seminars biweekly. And every year, Justice Ginsburg would invite us to the Supreme Court, to her chambers or to the lawyer's lounge. And she would just talk informally like we're doing now to the fellows and to us. And her husband, Marty, when he was still alive, would bake cookies or cake for this tea. And we would have tea with Justice Ginsburg. And she would talk about her work. And my co-author, Wendy Williams, and I were both involved with this program. And Wendy and I were shocked to learn that when Ruth would talk about these cases she was involved with in the 70s, even these women's rights lawyers, who were already lawyers, were surprised. They didn't know the story. So Wendy and I talked to each other and said, we could write a book. We could share this with the world. Now, this was, again, before Ruth Bader Ginsburg became the notorious RBG. That's right. So we went and we first wrote her a note asking her about this idea. And Wendy had worked with Ruth on some of the same cases in the 1970s. I just got to know Justice Ginsburg through the fellowship tease at the beginning. So she said, well, come to my chambers and we'll talk about it. So Wendy and I went to the Supreme Court and we're sitting in her chambers and we found that we were quite nervous. We, I'm we sure. Weren't because we knew Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but we really wanted to do this. And so Wendy looked at me and I looked at Wendy and Ruth started the meeting by saying, look, I have had my secretary copy these materials for you. And it was stacked on her conference table. And so we thought, so we're going to get to do this. That was 20 years ago. So fast forward. Every year, we would conduct interviews with Justice Ginsburg for three days in August and talk about her work. And as time went on and it was clear she was still doing important things, and as it is the authorized biography, we can't come out with it while she's still doing this amazing work. And so she had the idea. When you're sitting with uh, Justice Ginsburg, sometimes you see it's like you can almost see the light bulb go pop. And light bulb went, went off in her brain. She said, well, if you can't do the biography right now, why don't we instead do a collection of my writings? We had talked about doing the biography and then doing a collection of her most important writings. So this My Own Words book, the book we're talking about today, was her idea. It's really her book. And as you know, it, it is her writings. But of course, you had to have a pretty deft hand to... First of all, select. I mean, you had mountains of speeches and writings and articles and essays to choose from. I mean, just the selection process alone requires such a keen editorial eye. I really loved the way that you structured it chronologically and then sort of thematically near the end. And and then with your guidance, like we needed your guiding voice. We needed you to build the bridges between the pieces. We needed some of the context that you provided. So this was no simple matter of stapling together a handful of her own pieces. How long did this take you and your co-author? Thank you for that. I think that in, in a way was the biggest challenge of this book and also of the biography and trying to make this incredibly talented intellectual superstar, but her, her writings and she writes very clearly, and, and her own goal is to reach everyone, not just lawyers and other judges. But that is the challenge. The time it took, it was really only about a year from when that light bulb went off in her head until the book was published, but, but nonstop work. And it was definitely a collaborative effort. Justice Ginsburg was very involved, and Wendy Williams, my co was very involved. So, And Justice Ginsburg has this 
eagle eye. But in selecting the pieces, she was such a tremendous writer and speaker. There were so many, as you said, so many items. And the span in the book covers 70 years. Right, right. We've got something from middle school. I mean, the book opens up with her like editorial pieces, the editor of the middle school newspaper. Exactly. And so and then, you know, so a 70 year span. But she had such an amazing memory. So we would say, well, we'd really like to include one of the affirmative action race equality pieces. And we're, we, I suggested one. And she said, that's a really good idea, Mary. But you know what? How about we use the one that I gave in Paris in 19, you know, 98, because that also talks about Brown v. Board of Education in the international context. She would be right. That was the speech. That was the day. That was how it was different. And that was the best one. And that's the one, in fact, we included in the book. But she had such an eagle eye. But yes, yeah, so back to the that first piece she wrote. That was astounding. So, you know, when I came astounding. across that, this was, she was 13. She was actually eighth grade, eighth grade, right? Yes. And she wrote it for her school newsletter, newspaper. She went to public school in Brooklyn, New York. And the name of the newsletter was Highway Herald. And so you know, in looking through the entire Highway Herald, there are pieces that normal, you know, very smart, but normal eighth graders wrote about the school play or the field trip. And here's her piece, which starts with, the Ten Commandments, That's right. the Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and then ends with the newly formed UN Charter. So, you know, seeing that, it was like, okay, this is not an ordinary person. She is going somewhere. I cannot emphasize what you are saying enough. Obviously, in book club, we're all reading it. But for anybody else listening, when you read this 13-year-old's take, on what she perceives as yet another one of the world's great documents. Her clarity of thought, her word choice, but also her her like deep understanding of mankind and of, of dignity. It, it's just so, <laughs> I have five kids and I've been through eighth grade many, many, many times with all of them. None of them are like this. Like no. this is not the way eighth graders talk. She was special. I mean really gifted. And her teachers knew that, obviously. She was selected early on as a special student and getting full rights. I mean, obviously, her credentials speak for themselves, but I love that you chose to include some of those early writings, even something from her senior year in high school, just to show us this was no ordinary person. This was a person with some very wonderful gifts. Did you enjoy combing through some of that? I mean, those early writings are a long time ago. You had to dig. We did. And yes, I mean, this this project is a dream come true. You know, it, it has been. I, I only wish that Justice Ginsburg were alive to, you know, the idea was at some point in time, she would be off the court, finished her work and, and actually even see a draft, not change it. This is not that the biography is the official and authorized, but it's not. She never told us what to write or would have had a say in what we wrote. It's it's not, you know, a, a package deal, as was my own words. We can talk a little bit about that. For the parts that we wrote, she gave suggestions, but was never, you know, change this or I don't like, you know, for her writings, of course, those were her writings. But do you remember having either you having a piece you wanted to include and she was adamant that you didn't or she had a piece that you wanted to include and you were like I don't know like because again with such a body of work to pull from is there anything that didn't make it in that you wish would have yes but but the tug of war was more with our editor (laughs) ah (laughs) yes we all had favorite you know of course her favorites were going to go in no matter what it's her book Wendy and I had different things that we definitely wanted to go in. And we had a wonderful editor named Alice Mayhew, who has since died. And she just took home, we had sent kind of all all the pieces over. And she took them home one weekend and looked through them and came back and said, this is too legalistic. I thought this was boring. You know, this, this is. And so there were a couple pieces, and I can't remember now which ones that 
ended up staying in just because uh, Justice Ginsburg or we felt it was really important and we tried to then give more material to introduce them. But it was very hard to to sort through what I'm sure and what didn't go in. Well, and of course, naturally, a lot of the pieces are legalistic. They're literally legalistic. It is a legal piece of writing. It is. But she also had a way. When I read my own words, I couldn't ever check my brain at the door. I had to stay pretty engaged. You know, her writing is, is sophisticated and the concepts are deep and philosophical and ubiquitous in some ways to the human experience. You have... I had to pay attention. There were several paragraphs I had to read more than once. But at the same time, she did write in such a way that I'm just a person. I am understanding her point of view and her logic and her reasoning. And she did make it accessible as much as a brilliant person can to the normal people among her. That's a great point. And and that meant a lot to her. She cared so much about trying to do that. She she worked very hard at doing that. You know, she had uh, one of her college professors was Vladimir Nabokov. And she used to talk about how he used words to paint pictures. And you're a writer and you do this too, but it's really hard sometimes to do that. But it meant a lot to her. And I think advice to to your readers who haven't yet read the book, too, that I've given is this is not the kind of book you necessarily start on page one and read it right through in one sitting. I would think of it more as like a box of really nice chocolates where you have a few at a time and not necessarily in the order that they're arranged in the box. Although the book builds on itself, you can read chapters separately, as I'm sure you know, like the you know, the, there's one chapter just on the Justice Scalia relationship, and you don't need to read the childhood pieces first or the more legal gender equality pieces after to That's get right. That I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but I think a great deal of us that was among one of the more charming things we loved about her was her relationship with Justice Scalia. It was just, it was just so cute. It was just darling, and it gave us this sort of bipartisan place for our little hopes to land. And it's such such a good example of what it means to be on opposite sides, perhaps of an issue, but on the same side as just being a human person. I loved it. I'd love to hear you talk about her relationship with Justice Scalia and, and what it was like for you to sort of work through that particular piece of the book. Right. No, absolutely. So one thing is I I was able to interview Justice Scalia in 2007, so for the biography. And so part of that is in my own words, not a lot of it, but just enough to introduce the material. But first, the fact that here's a whole chapter in her book, several pieces completely about the relationship and Justice Scalia. And he produced a similar book of his writings, and she wrote the introduction for it. Their relationship, you know, started before they were Supreme Court justices, which I think might have been an important factor. But it was also based on they both, they love family, they love the opera, and he could make her laugh, which she really enjoyed. Other than her husband, Marty, I think Nino was her nickname for him, could make her laugh. But when I went in to interview him, Jen, it was so interesting because Justice Ginsburg's chambers were open, airy. She had, you know, modern art on the wall, family pictures everywhere, light colored furniture. And then you go into his chambers. It's dark and scary, you know, dark brown leather, a big dead animal on the wall above. And then you, you look at them both physically, you know, she was this tiny, very strong, but tiny woman. And he is this you know, was this huge, big, burly man. But it was really, it was really fun interviewing him because he starts off as tough and gruff. And we talked about gender equality and the VMI decision. But then he started talking about Ruth, his friend Ruth. And he said, most people think, you know, she's this like intense, serious individual and they don't understand what a truly loving, caring person she is. And told this story to me. They went to India together 
on a trip and he told the story of visiting the Taj Mahal together. And the tour guide was talking about the love story behind the building of the Taj Mahal and loss and grief and love. As Justice Scalia was telling this, he went on to say, and he looked over at Ruth and she was crying. And he was really touched by that. But the other thing I like about that, there's a picture in the book, if I can show you. Yes. There's a story about it. They rode an elephant together. So let's see. So good. See, can you see that? Uh-huh. And, and so I love that picture. But the other, the funny thing about that is her feminist friends, after seeing that picture was published in all the papers at the time, said, Ruth, why are you on the back of the elephant? And Nino's <laughs> on the front. And it says a little bit about the relationship that she ended up telling two different stories over time. The first story she's told was, it's all about weight distribution. <laughs> you have to be in the front. Yeah. But then I think she saw that he was sensitive about his weight. He was often going on diets and didn't necessarily like that answer. So in later years, she would say, it's because of seniority. We do everything at the court based on seniority. And he, he's been a justice longer than I have. So. <laughs> oh, that's so great. And she was funny. She's acerbic and her humor is just sharp as a tack and it's smart humor, the best kind. But yeah, I think maybe this idea of her as just being such a stalwart and so immovable and so principled, which of course she was, but She's also incredibly witty and delightful. I mean, I can see why they loved each other. And I can see why she was drawn to such a colorful character, too, because he was a giant in his own right. I wonder, and you'd have to, maybe you know this overtly, or maybe you just picked up on it, or maybe we can never know the inner workings of her own mind. But obviously, Ruth paid homage to several kind of pathmakers that were her inspirations and her role models and who she patterned a lot of her either work or language perspectives after. I wonder during all your years that you worked with her year after year, did she, I'm just curious if you think she had a sense of her own status as an icon for women. Do you feel like she had a sense of the magnitude of her work in the world and her place in feminism? A couple of things there. And that's, you know, you're very perceptive and picking up on that and paying homage to those who came before her and then reaching down and helping those who came after her. That's not something she developed later in life. It was from the very beginning. So sometimes I think people become famous and important and then they say okay now I can I can you know throw a few scraps but this was not her that was from the very beginning so even in her very first briefs she would cite in the brief or even put as an author of the brief someone whose work she found incredibly important with their permission even though they had nothing to do with the case this meant a lot to her to give credit to others who had inspired her. So it started very early. Now the icon status thing is really interesting because Ruth was a very modest person and didn't focus on her own importance, but she also was never falsely modest. You know, I think she understood how smart she was and the incredible contribution she made, even though she tried to make sure to share the credit. But the when the icon thing started and all the notorious things happened, which was really, you know, in the last 10, if that, years of her life, I think I saw a progression of her own feelings about it. So at first, I think she was surprised and, and bemused, you know, maybe not quite sure about this. And remember, Jen, she wasn't seeking this. So she she did not have like a publicity person or shy. Court, you know, the, the Supreme Court operates in a very tight personnel way. So she had four law clerks who just helped. And remember, she had this day job, like being a Supreme Court justice, hearing these cases, writing these opinions. And then she had two judicial assistants and, a, and an aide. And that was it. 
So for all these things she did, all these appearances, all the letters that she wrote back, she personally made the decision to always send a thank you note, including to her security personnel when when they went on trips overseas or even to New York and paid attention to everyone's family. So again, she didn't seek it. But I do think towards the end, she understood the importance. And so she didn't shut that door either, because I think she did see that, especially for younger people, learning the story and and in really challenging times to represent this idea that things still can be better and more fair for everyone in the future. I think she got that. And of course, as you you made the good point, I think that before her work in the 70s, the Supreme Court had never, ever struck down a gender distinction as unconstitutional. And after her work and the work of all the others who she gives credit to, now it's it's hard to imagine a gender distinction with standing constitutional scrutiny. So that is just a fact. And um, it's crazy, right? That wasn't that long ago. It really wasn't. It 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 sounds unimaginable to my ears. And yet I was born at that time when those were standard operating procedures legally that I just, it's incredible the reversal in such a short amount of time. And I want to talk more about obviously her work on gender equality as, as sort of her key anchor throughout her. I mean, although she touched on so many issues of, of injustice, of course, but her work around gender equality is it'll go down in the history books. Of course, I'd like to hear your perspective. Obviously you do a lot of this too. This is your, a huge amount of your bread and butter and always has been. This is a deep part of like um, what you use your incredible expertise for as well. So what was that like for you? Even as someone like you, who's already so accomplished in the genre, if we can call equality a genre, in the conversation, in the movement even, what did you learn from her or did anything surprise you or did she change your mind on something? I, she's just such an intellectual giant in this regard. So I, I think I'd just like to hear your experience of being under so deeply under her leadership in an area that you're already so focused on what that was like for you. Sure. Well, I think, you know, the, the gist of, of it is she believed strongly that gender equality is good for everyone and gender discrimination hurts everyone it hurts men women others children our society our country our world and so she firmly believed that and the idea that everyone each of us every human being should be free to pursue our goals regardless of gender like yeah why why gender you know why can't a woman attend Virginia Military Institute, for example? And so I think that just underlies everything. And, and it's a quite simple concept. It's not that complicated. It becomes complicated when you throw in the laws and the precedent and complicated formulas. But so she she felt that way strongly and believed this. But also people mattered to her. There were people in these cases and they were hurt and she saw them hurt and and they mattered so much to her. One fun thing we got to do, we, we got to do a lot of fun things with Justice Ginsburg, but one was we went back to Virginia Military Institute with her for an event. But this Virginia state sponsored school did not allow women to apply, attend. And she was a Supreme Court justice and wrote the majority opinion in 1996, so three years after she went on the court in this opinion. The only dissenter in the opinion was Justice Scalia. Scalia, right. And Justice Thomas recused himself because his son was attending. That's right. So we went back 21 years later. She had never been to VMI. At the time of the case, her clerk went and did research, but uh, Justice Ginsburg had never been there travel back with her 21 years later was really special. 
And it brought to life what one of these decisions could do. So my co-author, Wendy Williams, and I interviewed Justice Ginsburg on stage in this huge like basketball arena with, I don't know, thousands of people. And so all the cadets were there, the current cadets and, and a whole bunch of women. And after the event, it was to look out and see her get a standing ovation from this sea of I have goosebumps. special. And then we had a tour of the campus. And so we saw female cadets and male cadets in their different rooms. She talked to these female cadets and asked them what they would be doing. And, and then the very first female cadets who ever attended were also invited and they were there. And so they talked to her and, and told her how this had changed their life. Oh, that's just powerful. The change that did happen in this case. But she also, on, on the people theme, you know, that, that gender equality wasn't just a legal thing for her. It wasn't just laws and words and legal concepts. It was people. And that mattered a lot to her. So she kept in touch with many of the people she represented in the early years in the 70s throughout her entire life. And one of my favorite stories is the Weisenfeld case where a young couple, the wife was pregnant and she died during childbirth. Stephen Weisenfeld, who was the father, wanted to stay home and, and take care of the baby until the child started kindergarten. And under the current laws, he could not receive child social security payments. He could if he had been a woman and not if he had been a male. So she took that case and won the case. But she kept in touch with him her entire life. She performed. So Jason was the little baby. The baby was fine. And Jason was the baby. And she performed his wedding. She wow. performed the father's second or third marriage, maybe both later on and kept a correspondence with them. And that's that's an example. That's not the outlier. She just really cared about the people. And and so again, the change wasn't just this intellectual thing that mattered to her. It was changing individuals' lives so that people could, you know, a young girl could hope to be a Supreme Court justice or an astronaut, not just a boy could have those hopes and dreams. So it's so interesting to hear you talk and of course to read the book because I've got two daughters and they're 16 and 22 and it just, it wouldn't occur to them that they couldn't be an astronaut. You know, it just, it wouldn't occur to them that they would deserve anything less than their brothers. You know, I just, this work, it goes back to people like you mentioned, because all these sort of groundbreaking cases that she was a part of, it's changed lives. It's changed our culture. It's it's just so profoundly important. And I'm here kind of splitting the difference because I came up when these things were still being argued, right? And and decided and overturned and reversed. But my daughters do not know a different world than this one, than this like world that she helped create. And it's just, we just owe such a debt of gratitude to her and everyone, you, everyone who has worked to this end to create change. It's helpful for me. I just, the world is so polarized and awful right now. And I just, I'm tempted to despair on some days. And then I just remember change. It does happen. It is possible. It is this patient, steady work of people who are just, they serve the public like her. And it, it gives me like renewed hope for things that are broken now to be better for the next generation. No. And I do think that's something that you do. I mean, when we talked about this before, you know, I think of you as a bridge builder and you never met Justice Ginsburg, did you? No. Oh, she would have really loved what you're doing and your work. And, and, uh, and she, she shared that. I, I would say that, for example, her relationship with Justice Scalia, she thought it was really important to talk to people who might have different beliefs or different values or different opinions than she had, and to try to use reasoning to change their mind if she could. She couldn't always. So Justice Scalia 
was the dissenter in VMI, despite her best efforts. And I don't think he ever changed his mind or thought that 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 school should have been open for women. But it didn't end the friendship. Yes. She, she just thought, you've got to keep trying and talking. And it's that's much more important than just shutting people out who, who don't agree with you. It's not easy, right? That's right. It's not easy. And it's a long game. And it's a long and it's game. not quick. No, exactly. and it's not simple. But the steady commitment of people to justice has always made a difference. Always. I mean, some work takes longer than others, but you mentioned it earlier, but my grandpa, I mean, this is like just what two generations from my grandpa was the court reporter on Brown versus board. And so that's just, it's all such a short amount of time in the span of, of humanity. Like that was just, just before me. And so to him about that, I have just lamented this ad nauseum in that my, I lost my grandpa when I was younger and I just did not have, I didn't have Ruth Bader Ginsburg's brain in eighth grade to know your grandpa's interesting. Like he has done some groundbreaking things in his life that mattered to the entire country. He was just my grandpa telling me not to run with a pencil. And so I missed my window. We started losing him to Alzheimer's when I was in high school. But I've, I've literally sat at my dad's feet and said, dad, tell me everything you can remember about that time. Cause my dad was of course a kid in the home at the time. And so now I make this my mission to tell people your grandparents, your parents are a wealth of information. I took that to my mom and she said, oh, just very casually, this was not that long ago. And she tells me, oh yeah, my high school was desegregated my sophomore year of high school. My mom, you know, it just- Where was this in- um, Wichita, Kansas. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so So we're not that far removed from these massive, massive cultural shifts. No, and you're so right that to ask the people who are still alive these important questions. And and no matter how hard we try, I think once we lose people that we think of things that we really wish we had learned is so important. I want to ask you one last question, Mary. I mean, obviously, this is a labor of decades, really. I mean, you've had your hand at this work for a long time. On this one particularly, because the the biography is its own piece of work with its own, in in this one, do you have something that you're hoping that the readers kind of walk away with? If you, obviously every reader is going to bring their own story and experience to the book and they're going to receive it through that lens. But would you say like, this is what I would love to see happen when a reader closes the last page? Do you have any hopes or goals for the book? Well, it's a great question. So speaking of wishing you could ask someone else that, I would love to ask Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Me too. That, but, and, and again, I think of this, I think of my own words, of course, it's her, it's her book. You know, we played a very small part and the writings are her life's work. So I, I guess to answer that, well, if I were Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I would stop for five minutes now and think about it. It would be a long pause and you would think, <laughs> oh no, what's going to happen to this? Pod? Because that's, that's what great. she would do. As her husband Marty said, she was not afraid of dead airtime. But I then love she'd it. come out w- with an incredibly well thought out, well formed, perfect grammatical paragraph as the <laughs> totally. answer. No, I'm not going to so I won't do that. But I think coming away with it knowing more, it's not a biography, but how this person thought about things and how she wrote about them and the cases that she spent her life working on. I think coming away with that and and then a hope for the future. Everyone can do something. Everyone can't be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but everyone can do something on the issues that they care about, which may be completely different than the issues that she cared about. That's right. And the other thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I'm not sure that most people know this. 
she was incredibly talented and brilliant and compassionate, but she worked so hard, Jen. I have never, I'm, a, I'm around a lot of workaholics in Washington, you know, I've never seen anyone work so hard and she loved it. So it, it, it's not that she did it for fame or for money. She, she ended up with those things too, but that wasn't what drove her. She really cared about the issues, but she loved her work. And so even on vacation, we went to Sweden together where she was honored and gave speeches and we did events. But even when she wasn't at the court and court wasn't in session, this human being worked so hard and she read every, you know, the case below. She read all the briefs she wrote, as you know, you've seen what she wrote here, just all the opinions. And she just, she applied herself. So I think she's an example of using whatever skills we are lucky enough to either be born with or ta talent or that we've worked to use them to the best you know, of your ability. And one one thing that was funny today, so I get, I have a Google alert for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, and I still get, you know, a bunch of stuff every morning. And today there was something from an artificial intelligence bot that someone's created. They've put in all of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's decisions and writings. And you can ask, I can send you the link later if you'd like, but you can ask Ruth Bader Ginsburg a question. Oh my God. So there's a picture of her. So of course I did it. And of I course. Said, Will I finish my book on time? So my the current deadline, our book, the current deadline is December 1st of this year to finish the draft. And, and there's a lot to do still. We've done a lot. So I asked the question and the answer came back. Yes, probably if you work really hard. <laughs> so it's true. It simulated her perfectly. This is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So it, it gives <laughs> yes or no answers, but then yeah. I, I was surprised to see the extra bit thrown in. Yeah. So kind of like the old, did you ever have an eight ball way back Oh, sure. When? Yeah. Um, anyway, that, that was so interesting. That is so funny uh, that they've pulled little bits and pieces of her ethos to craft answers. That's fantastic. Okay. Can you finally, can you, what can you tell us before I let you go about the biography? This is obviously a huge lift for you and your co-writer. You've been working on it forever. You now have 11 months to get it done, 10 and a half. Tell us a little what you can about it. And we, I'm just so looking forward to it. I'm going to read it the day it comes out. Right. Well, thank you. So the challenge is trying to get so much material into a manageable book, you know, not you could have several volumes covering all of her writings and her life. And yet I think our other challenge, which is a new one. So I think originally we felt the biggest challenge was making this book accessible to non-lawyers because a regular reader uh -huh. to be out there for everyone. And that's what she cares about. And yet not sacrifice the intellectual depth of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So that's a big challenge. Totally. The other challenge is there is so much out there now about her. So it's to draw that thread all the way through where we have been privileged to have been given access to her, most importantly, that other people haven't, and to share that in a meaningful way. Are you close? We're close, not necessarily to meeting those goals and doing the best job that we want to do. But, but there are also materials that, you know, that became available to us after she, sadly, after yeah, she sure. incorporating those and then giving some perspective to the last few years. It's harder, as you know, you're a writer, so you, you face these challenges. It's, it's harder sometimes to, to be able to step back and give perspective to things that are happening right now. Certainly. We're just, we're in the belly of the beast. It's sometimes hard to see it clearly. Right. So after Justice Ginsburg died, we did an event at Georgetown. And so I actually looked for quotes for young people that Ruth had said during her life hmm. as a kind of parting word for her to inspire them. I'd love to hear them. And one, she mentions her, her granddaughter, who is also a lawyer. So yes, we have a long way to go, but how far we have come. 
our country has gone through some very bumpy periods, but I'll tell you the principal reason why I'm optimistic. It's the young people I see. My lawyer granddaughter, my law clerks are determined to contribute to the good of society and to work together. So the young people make me hopeful. They want to take part in creating a better world. Think of Malala. Think of Greta Thunberg in Sweden. Yes, I'm putting my faith in the coming generations. I'm guessing you have um, people of all ages in your book club, but but probably some people younger than me for sure. Yeah, um, and then me. So I love that. That's such a lovely sentiment. And I think she's right. I think she was right. I think this next generation is incredibly hopeful. They're so smart. They're ambitious. They're engaged. They care about the right things in a way that even we didn't, even just a generation before them. And I feel also really hopeful about these kids coming up. They get a lot of bad press for reasons I can't quite figure out. Right. It's true. <laughs> yeah. But I, I feel the opposite. I'm with her. I think that's what a lovely quote that students must have loved her words being read over their young adult ears. That must have been delightful. Well, thank you. Thank you for all of this. Thank you for your work. It's so fascinating. She's been such a touchstone for so many of us. And so I'm so grateful that you and Wendy have worked so hard to make her work accessible to us. It's just, there's so much of it and it spans so many decades and it's so all-encompassing and overwhelming. This gives us a way to know her and it gives us a way to continue her legacy in the big and small ways that we can and do. And it's just incredible. I can't wait for your biography. Just thrilled about it. And we'll be all, the book club will all be signing up to read it because we are just, in my own words, has spurred so many incredible conversations, of course inside our book club, which is entirely women. And so we're just, this is how we feel about it. Your affinity for her, your affection and respect for her, so clear. Even just in your contextual notes and your intro notes, it's just so obvious that this was written by, this was compiled by women who deeply respected her. And it's just lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. 